You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. No more tolerance for abusive actions by monopolies. No more bad mergers that lead to mass layoffs, higher prices, fewer options for workers and consumers alike. And the Justice Department's antitrust division has been following that edict from President Joe Biden without much success in court until this week. A federal judge has blocked Penguin Random House's $2.18 billion acquisition of rival book publisher Simon & Schuster, ruling that the purchase of the fourth largest U.S. book publisher by the largest publisher would lessen competition in the market for publishing rights to anticipated top-selling books and lower advances for authors. Joining me is antitrust expert Harry First, a professor at NYU Law School. Harry, before this verdict, the Justice Department had lost three antitrust challenges in a row. So how important is this for the Biden administration and its aggressive approach to curbing consolidation? Well, it's better to win than lose. They really needed this win, it's true. And I'm not sure how aggressive the other cases were. I mean, they were cases. Let's put it in a little historical context. As a general rule... When the Justice Department, over time, has brought merger cases in district courts, they have often found skeptical judges. And this goes back many years. So in some sense, this isn't new. What is new is that they're actually bringing cases and litigating them rather than settling them. So in a sense, it's a reemergence of an old pattern. Now, in former days, this is going back to before the 19, I guess, 1974, really goes back to 1903, Congress dealt with this skepticism by trial judges by allowing for direct appeal in antitrust civil cases to the Supreme Court because they were so important. That changed in 1974, and as a result of that and other things, there really hasn't been a merger case in the Supreme Court since then. So all the cases have been federal district courts and courts of appeals. But district court judges are often skeptical, and they are often swayed by the executives themselves who come in and testify, often persuasively about their business. So it's not surprising that the track record doesn't look so good, but it is nice (laughs) for the Justice Department to have won one. 
why are district court judges so skeptical? Why are they believing the CEOs on one side? Is the Justice Department not just not putting on a good enough case? Well, this is a question a lot of people ask, and I think the enforcers ask themselves. So for merger law, the law requires the judge to make a prediction. What might the effect of this merger be on competition in the future? And in the famous words, the problem with predictions is that they're about the future. So, you know, who knows? And judges complain about this and feel a little uncomfortable. So particularly in recent times, you have the Justice Department often bringing in economists who have nice theories, who have models, who say, well, we think the price is going to go up by such and such. And then you have the executives who know their business, and they come in and say, look, this is the greatest darn thing in the world, and we're under such pressures, and this will allow us to compete better. There has never been a merger in which the parties have said, you know, this merger is (laughs) anti-competitive. So it's always pro-competitive, and often, not always, but often these witnesses are pretty persuasive. I mean, that's how they got to high positions in their companies. Antitrust is usually focused on harm to consumers, but the Justice Department's theory here was harm to authors and authors' earnings. Was this a novel approach? So this is the second interesting thing about the case. The first one was that they won. (laughs) Second interesting thing is the Justice Department focused on, as they like to call it, on labor, so on workers. And this has been an important part of the Biden administration's political focus, that they want to do things to make workers' incomes higher. And this case was positioned to focus on that, on workers. Now, when we think of workers, we think of, you know, people in the oil field, people on manufacturing lines. We don't usually think of Stephen King. So workers and million-dollar advances, I don't know. But here it's authors. Now, from an economist point of view, and really also from a technical antitrust point of view, workers or labor is another market. And antitrust is concerned with competition and markets. So you want to have appropriate competition, not just for firms as they sell products, but firms as they buy products from their suppliers. Now, the suppliers here are authors, which supply their talent. And for the markets to work right, there has to be competition among buyers for what they have to produce. So you want competition, as they say, on both sides of the market, on the sell side and on the buy side. So in one sense, yes, it's unusual. Not that there haven't been. There have been cases looking at the buy side. So that fits into an economic perspective. But yes, you know, concern for labor put that way is part of the political message of the administration and of antitrust enforcers as to what antitrust can do in the economy. So, Harry, the Justice Department said the deal would harm authors getting book advances. How did Penguin Random House argue that a consolidation would help authors? On its face, it seems like less competition, lower advances. Well, the way antitrust goes is the pro-competitive part, now this will make everybody better, is considered an efficiency defense. So, you know, why is this merger good? So as a technical matter, the first part is the government has to show 
that the merger is bad. It's not up to the defendants to prove it's good. Of course, they want to make an argument that they'll save money, that they'll produce more efficiently, that they'll be competitive in the marketplace with all sorts of other firms that we might not think of as publishers today, but that are competing with them, meaning Amazon. Or self-publishers. There are people who publish books themselves, get on the bestseller list, in fact, or publish through Amazon. So that may be part of the affirmative story, but the judge didn't really let them tell an affirmative story. She said that the efficiencies weren't well enough independently verified. So as I said, no party to a merger ever says this will make us less efficient and allow us to raise prices. They always say it will make us more efficient. So often enforcers, and this time the judge, can be a little skeptical of of these stories. So they didn't really get to tell this story. What they did try to do was to chip away at the government story. So it wasn't really going to affect these advances very much because there's still a lively market. And what market exactly are we talking about? There are lots of authors and actually a lot of competition still even after the merger, for advances to these authors. So it's not just as if you have these two. And then finally, this is such a little part of you know the whole market of what authors face that it's not significant. The judge, Florence Pan, and we don't have her opinion yet because there's right. confidential facts in there that they're going to have to take out. But she said that in an order that the Justice Department had demonstrated that the merger might substantially harm competition in the market for U.S. publishing rights to anticipated top-selling books. Is this a case really of there's been so much consolidation in the publishing industry for 20 years and taking it from five to four was just a step too far? Well, my answer would be sure, but under current law, that's not enough. You're not going to win a case that way. Judges will say, well, so tell me why four is not enough to be competition. So the government has to define a market and has to show some effect within a defined market. Now, what's critical, even though the judge you know, didn't release her opinion, just in what you said shows that she accepted the definition of a market that the Justice Department put forward, which is sort of an unusual market, market for U.S. publishing rights to anticipate its top-selling books. So exactly what books are those? Whatever it is, it's actually not the market for advances to all authors. So we are talking about the top-selling authors, and these are the authors that get the six-figure or seven-figure advances. Anticipated being the key word, these are the ones that publishers bet are really going to sell a lot, and so they're willing to compete for the rights to publish those books and to pay the authors a hefty amount as an advance. So the judge accepted the notion that was put forward by the Justice Department's economists that this is a well enough defined market in which you can show that putting these two firms together will result in lowering the price that they pay for the author's rights. 
Penguin Random House came out with a statement. They strongly disagree with the decision. And as you said, they said they believe this merger will be pro-competitive. And they said the Department of Justice's focus on advances to the world's best-paid authors instead of consumers or the intense competitiveness in the publishing sector runs contrary to its mission to ensure fair competition. So they say they'll appeal. If they do appeal, does that look like it's where they're going to focus the appeal on the market? You know, just from reading that line, the first focus would be on the market definition is wrong, and they didn't really, in a sense, define a market as it's meant under antitrust law. What they defined was this sort of head-to-head competition between Penguin and Simon & Schuster for rights to a few books, but, you know, a couple of books does not a market make. There are other competitors for those rights, and it's not a real market, so that's the first thing. The second thing that they probably will harp on if they did appeal this is that even if there are effects among these few authors, consumers have not been hurt and that the purpose of the antitrust laws is protecting consumer welfare. And this does not translate into harm for consumers. And in fact, the Justice Department's economist testified that he did not find any harm in downstream markets to consumers. And that's a direct quote from his testimony. So there it is. They, they didn't show any real harm to consumers. And in fact, if the judge had allowed, as she should have, proof of efficiency defenses, we would have shown the consumers are helped by what happened there. And there's, there's no diminution in the number of these best-selling books. We'll have the same. No effect on output. You know, Stephen King isn't going to say oh, my God, I'm going to stop writing now. Mm -hmm. Um, Still going to write. All these authors are still going to write. We're still going to have top-selling books. But we're going to squeeze some of that advance money out of the system, and it will enable us to pay other authors more. I mean, you know, you can spin it out. Now, are they going to take this appeal, and will it be successful? Obviously, I have no idea this is the first one. And in some sense, I don't have an idea of the second one because I haven't read her opinion. But it would not surprise me if they're not successful on appeal, depending on how she writes her opinion, because there is a history of accepting buy-side problems and input markets, and I think it would remain to be seen whether they would have a successful appeal, but hard to assess right now. There's a question as to whether they'll even be able to appeal because the purchase agreement between Penguin and Simon & Schuster's parent company, Paramount Global, expires either in mid-November or at the end of November. I don't right. know which. Uh-huh. And an appeal would require more time, so they'd need to extend the arrangement. Right. And right. under the agreement, Penguin has to pay Paramount a $200 million breakup fee if the deal doesn't go through. So Paramount could just walk away. Right. Well, they're going to have a fun negotiation over that, aren't they? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Here's a quick guess. If if after they look at the opinion, you know, the lawyers think maybe this is challengeable, you know, then you're talking money. So renegotiate the breakup fee. I mean, it's a lot of money, this deal. It's two-plus billion dollars or so. You know, it may be that it's in the interest, you know, of Simon & Schuster to um, do what it can to keep this going if it feels that they could be successful on appeal uh, and save the deal. So $200 million 
a lot of money to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it, obviously they can negotiate their way through this if the parties can reach a deal that seems beneficial to both sides. So it's not over till it's over. Uh, my guess is the first step is seeing what the judge's opinion looks like and, you know, whether they think they've got a case to make on appeal. The CEO of Harper Collins, which also wanted to buy Simon & Schuster, testified that they'd still be interested if Penguin's bid was blocked. Would their attempt to buy it, if it came to that, also be challenged by the Justice Department? So Harper Collins, I think, is third. But the theory doesn't have to do with their rankings. I mean, the way the case was tried and the theory of the case is there was a sufficient head-to-head competition for these rights between the two firms that if you ended that head-to-head competition, you would end competition over the, a lot of auctions for these projected best-selling works. So it would be hard to answer that question without examining the bidding between Penguin and HarperCollins, whether they've been bidding on the same books. If they haven't, that theory isn't really going to work. So then the question would be, is there some other theory that deals with the five to four is basically a theory that with fewer firms, it's easier to sort of collude without being in the same room. You know, there's less pressure on price. And so they'd have to think about a different theory than they used in this case. So not a foregone conclusion that the government would be able to challenge that merger. On the other hand, it seems to me they would. Thanks so much, Harry. That's Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
Three abortion rights protesters were arrested and charged on Wednesday after interrupting Supreme Court oral arguments to blast the court's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade and to call on women to vote in next week's election. But poll after poll shows that abortion is not the top issue on voters' minds. The economy is. Joining me is Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor and a professor at Iona College. How much did the Democrats place their bets on the election being a referendum on abortion rights? Did they place too many bets on that? They did. Um, If you look just at, say, the number of ads Democrats were running throughout the summer into the early fall on abortion, they put, you know, all of their eggs or many of their eggs in that basket. And the reality is it, it, it is an issue that's important. It's an issue that's important to get out their face. It's an issue that will help them stave off what could be a really, really tough election season for them. But it was never going to be enough to turn this over in their favor. And that's where I think they miscalculated. And, you know, we'll have to wait and see what happens. But that's where I believe we may see next week that they miscalculated on this. Does it appeal to the base? Will it get the base out? It will absolutely get the base out. And and this, I think, is really important. When you look overall, they should not just put all their eggs in the abortion basket. But as you look at individual states, say like a place like Michigan or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, and you look at some aspects of their base, in particularly young women, 18 to 24-year-olds, or 18 to even 29 or 35, if it helps to get that base out in those states and amongst those constituencies, it'll be incredibly important. And you add on to that, if this election is in many places as close as we think it's going to be, every single vote matters. So, you know, the reality is it's something they definitely have to push on. But the other reality is, is that by and large, the voters um, agree with Democrats on this issue. So they need to buttress their push on abortion with their push on the cost of living, inflation and economic issues, which are overwhelmingly the most important issue in every voter's mind. And how have Democrats been handling those issues? Because no matter what the cause of inflation is and the economy the party in charge gets blamed for it. They do get blamed for it. Um, And, you know, I think one thing, um, putting my critics hat on for a minute, is that Democrats have not had a concerted strategy from the top to address these issues. And just as an example, you know, throughout much of the summer, even into the early fall for a certain to a certain extent, the Biden administration was trying to You know, at first it was trying to say that inflation would be transitory. Next, it sort of morphed into the economy is better than you think. Just look at the job numbers. You know, inflation wasn't transitory, as it turned out. And the job numbers, they're right, are good. But anytime you're in a campaign and your message to voters is you're wrong about how you feel, that's a losing message. And all of the voters and the people responding to polls were telling pollsters, telling us that they are deeply worried about their economic situation. The cost of living is getting worse and worse. They're concerned about inflation. So when from the top, the message is either this isn't happening or morphing into it's better than you think. That's a problem for Democrats. And so of late, they have tried to adjust that. 
Um, I noticed just as an example in the Georgia debate between Warnock and Walker, I thought Warnock did a good job of defending what Democrats have done. And this is what they have to do. They have to say, number one, this is what we've done. For example, on the cost of pharmaceuticals, we passed a bill that's bringing those down. Would you have voted against that, Mr. Walker? That's basically what he said. Um, so they have to defend what they've done. And then they also have to look at in contrast with what Republicans plan to do. There's either not a concerted plan in that arena or there are really dangerous signs. Like you hear about Rick Scott, for instance, talking about sunsetting out Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. You uh, can talk about those things as Democrats have tried but not been able to make the case. Also, as the president has tried of late to talk about issues like corporate greed, the numbers, it, my Republican friends that we talk to, when you look at the amount oil companies alone made in this third quarter as we are facing gas prices rising, these examples of corporate greed really resonate with people. So all of which is to say, and it's probably far too long, that there was an answer to this, but I think the Democrats couldn't get in front of that economic message, which in combination with abortion, and I would add a third rail, which is really important, which is crime. They really could have, you know, I don't know, stave off historic losses, but they could have, you know, maybe helped change the trajectory to a bit, maybe save the Senate. They still might. We don't know yet. But it's harder without those economic messages that resonate with voters, and they haven't been able to do that yet. What I'm always surprised at, especially considering what the Supreme Court did last term, at the end of last term, and the cases in front of it this term, why with senators the Supreme Court isn't an issue since they're the ones that are going to be voting on judicial nominations? Yeah, it's fascinating because, as as you know, um, Republicans have done that very well for you know, since the passage of Roe, they have, you know, really built up a, uh, a large constituency of conservatives who have kept abortion as a very important issue in their minds and voted that way at important, most importantly, the presidential level and to a certain extent for Senate. And, you know, Democrats, I think, maybe were stunned by the Dobbs decision to a certain extent and haven't had the time that Republicans, obviously, this was, you know, 50 years um, they had to build up this case. So maybe in, you know, a couple years, five, 10 years, we will see that argument being made in a more concerted effort, in a concerted way, rather, on the Democratic side. Given it's only been, you know, a few months, um, maybe they haven't had the time to, to make that case. Um, and I think the fact that they didn't see Dobbs coming is, you know, part of the problem on the left, and they have to contend with that. But Democrats have never been good on making abortion a key issue, um, at least to this point. And again, this could change going forward. So I would, you know, look for that. I think if we see a real connection between voting and the issue of abortion in the 2022 midterm, we may see some at the Senate level, like in the case of Walker and Warnock, or in the case of in Pennsylvania, Oz and Fetterman. You know, I do think it's resonating in certain Senate races for the reasons you mentioned. I also think we will see it at the gubernatorial level as well. So there's several governor's races are up. And because Dobbs has, as you know, turned this over to the state, 
I think we may see an impact there. So I'm thinking of cases like Michigan, um, the gubernatorial race out there, um, you know, a, a place like Pennsylvania, certainly with Shapiro, um, where abortion has really been on the ballot in those gubernatorial races because people really do get the connection that now governors and certainly state legislatures will be making these decisions until and unless we see action at the federal level on this. So, you know, I think we have to wait and see what Democrats do in terms of building a constituency on this issue at the federal level. But at this point, I think we're going to see that maybe turn up a little bit in some of the polls at the state level um, in this election cycle. New York's governor, Kathy Hochul, did press abortion. It seemed to me in most of her ads up until recently, abortion was the issue. That didn't seem to work out too well for her because the Republican challenger, Lee Zeldin, is very close and could win. First time we've seen a Republican governor in New York in I don't know how long. Yes, since Pataki, June. It's been a while. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they raise a name from the past. But... That's right. No, I remember. <laughs> yes, yeah, been a while. Um, you know, I would say, you know, most of the young people today that may be voting for the first time, they have never lived in New York with a Republican governor, to your point. So it's been a long time. One thing I think that happened, and this I think is a great example, um, a state like Michigan or a state like Pennsylvania, because these tend to be blue, purplish states, you may see, you know, a change in the uh, protections of abortion at the state level. A bluer state like New York and particularly since we, uh, we, we codified it um, not that long ago, it's unlikely that you're going to see a change at the state level in protection for the right to choose. And I think that explains in part what happened in, or what is happening in the hopeful Zeldin race is that people in New York don't fear the right of abortion is going to be limited in this state anytime soon. Whether they're right or wrong about that, most people feel given the passage of the codification and also because we have an overwhelmingly democratic legislature, um, that that's not likely. So I think what happened was the issue is still important, but it has been surpassed by another issue that it seems to be on the minds of voters in New York. And that's one Lee Zeldin's talking about almost exclusively, which is crime. And then, of course, in, in all cases, the economy. So I think, you know, Hochul pushing again, putting most of her eggs in the abortion basket early, may have to a certain extent not addressed other issues voters are thinking about, namely crime and the economy. She has started to do that of late, particularly on crime. But it's, you know, again, I think a case in which people feel like, what is the biggest threat out there? For New Yorkers, it's not losing the ability to access the right to choose, but rather crime and the economy. And that's what they want to see their candidates talking about. And Democrats have got to wake up to that reality. Thanks so much for your insights, Jeannie. That's Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.